Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, a Gnome Stew tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the brisk Bill Carter, the garrulous GM Gerrymander, and the bracing Bob Quack. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Jared and JT, and we're going to talk about picking up new editions of familiar games. Before we dive into that main topic, though, we're going to ask our let's get to know a gnome question. And that question today is, other than D&D, what is the oldest game you've continually played? Now, to qualify, you have to have played some version of it within the last five years. Jared, I'm going to start with you. Of course. So, <laughs> I actually came up with two responses for this because I'm not 100% sure if uh, these both apply. So, the first thing I was talking about was Star Wars, but the problem with Star Wars is it has changed editions radically. It's not like iterations of the same edition. You yeah. know, it went from Western Games to multiple D20 versions to then the Fantasy Flight system. Mm -hmm. And if you count Star Wars as a role-playing property and just kind of see it as one game that has radically changed rules, that would be my answer. However, if you, like me, also believe that's a cop-out, I, uh, <laughs> I would probably have to say Fate, mm. because um, the very first Fate game that I got was uh, Dresden Files, like the original Dresden Files Same. back in 2010. And um, yep. then I got, you know, Fate, you know, I have yeah, Fate Core, Fate Accelerated, Fate Condensed. I have multiple versions of Fate of uh, games that have the Fate Core rules resummarized within them. So I would probably have to say Fate because that's been about a 10 year run. Now, here's a question Do you count Fudge in the evolution of Fate, which takes you back into the 90s if you ever played it back then? I didn't, I never played Fudge, so thankfully I don't have to honestly answer this question. But <laughs> I'll throw my two cents worth in. I mean, it is definitely part of what went into Fate. I don't know if you can still say that it is. It's it's Fate in the same way that um, Forged in the Dark games are powered by the Apocalypse. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, I was going to say it's the same as 1st Edition D&D is related to 5th Edition D&D. If you strip off mm. all the identifying marks, they are nowhere near the same game. Yeah. But if you start, you know, you can see some similarities yeah. in the, you know, the same basic six stats, things like that. So I would say, yes, Fudge is not is fate, but is at least a linked predecessor. You can, to fate. You can, you can trace the evolution. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. How about you, JT? What's your answer to this one? I'm going to go with Cyberpunk. Um, I did look around my, my shelves behind me and, and kind of peered through the games. Top Secret SI is an older game that I've played quite a bit of, but not continuously. The the you know I have to have played some version within the last five years. Eh, that disqualifies Top Secret SI, even though I've I've still got it on the mm -hmm. shelf. So I'm going to go with Cyberpunk, starting with the 2013 version. Eh, what was that? 89, something like that. 90 around there somewhere. Yeah, I I think 89 is right, but I'd have to look it up. I'd have to look it up as well. So, um, but following through Cyberpunk 2020 and its uh, glory days and on through today, and then of course Cyberpunk Red, which just got released uh, last yeah. month, and I have been sparingly going through the book. It, it, it for me, Cyberpunk Red is like a a good uh, dessert that you want to slowly enjoy, <laughs> as opposed to 
you know, that, that happy meal that you just want to chow down and get on with your day. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I've been slowly enjoying uh, cyberpunk red over the last uh, three or four weeks or so. So what about you, Ange? What's your uh, oldest continuously played game? My answer is the rival to your game, Shadowrun. <laughs> ah, uh, yes. yes. So Shadowrun was the first game I truly became aware of other than D&D. And that's because my GM had that very sexy book with the Larry Elmore cover that's I'm like, what is this? I want, what is this? And then, you know, like I, it has been one of my convention games. I go to a convention if there's a Shadowrun game on there and I either trust the GM or don't know the GM, I'll give it a shot because there's plenty of bad Shadowrun GMs I won't play with. But it's, it's probably been the, the game system setting that I have played longest the caveat to that, I will say, is I have actually never really had the opportunity to play a Shadowrun campaign. I've never had a GM wow. okay. in my life that has been willing to run a campaign. One of the guys in my group tried, but we only played like two sessions before life happened oh. and we got distracted by something else. So I've never actually played a campaign of Shadowrun. If the qualifier is campaign, I'm going to say World of Darkness because, you know, we played Vampire back in the early 90s when it came out, and it is still a game that pops up occasionally. We did a, um, I think it's within the five-year time limit I set on things, but we did a, a holiday, holiday special World of Darkness game that was a lot of fun a few years ago where we basically, uh, like, one of us was a vampire, one of us was a werewolf, two people were, like, mundane FBI agents, one guy was a cultist, <laughs> and one guy was a terrorist who was going to blow up a large party in a penthouse on New Year's Eve. Oh, wow. Uh, and so, you know, we had this these different people moving in different things, and you know, it was a whole bunch of fun using World of Darkness. So that's another one that's kind of been a continuous thread, even if it's not a, a not a regular we, we turn back to anymore. Right. Yeah, my cyberpunk is similar to your Shadowrun in that I have game mastered it for, you know, well, since what, 92, I think is when I first picked up 2020. I had 2013, but I couldn't get anybody to come to the table until 2020 came mm -hmm. out and, and, you know, went, went from there. But uh, anyway, I've run, I've kind of been doing a mental count here while you were talking seven campaigns, wow. a, a whole bunch of one shots. I, I don't even know how many one shots, to be honest with you. And I've only played like been a player in one campaign. And that's because I begged and begged and begged my buddy to run mm -hmm. it uh, for, for me and another friend. And he acquiesced and he actually ran a damn fine game. And that ran for eh, eight months or so. That's respectable. And we just had a blast. Yeah, it's respectable for cyberpunk or any modern or futuristic game. It, you know, those tend to run shorter than your fantasy games for some reason. Go figure. What's interesting is my my Call of Cthulhu experience is like Ange's uh, Shadowrun experience because that is a convention <laughs> game for me. I've never had anyone run it. I've never been in a campaign. It's just I usually at least once a year at a convention pick up a Call of Cthulhu game. Nice. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that brings us, you know, quite nicely into our main topic of discussion, 
you know, I think it is safe to say that the three of us qualify as grognards, <laughs> i.e. old gamers. Uh, yeah. You know, we all started playing decades back, so we've seen many games come and go, and many games evolve over the years with new additions, and we thought it would be an interesting conversation to talk about what makes people pick up a new edition of familiar games. Jared, you're the one that proposed this topic, so I'm going to toss this to you first. Okay. Well, not only do, did I oppose this topic, but I have a poll that I had run online that I had written an article on for my blog. So I actually have some data to throw at people. So I'm, I'm getting my day job data involved points. in my night job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so what I came up with when I ran this poll... 51% of people said that they would get a game if they liked the new version, if they had the money for it. No, no real qualifier to it. It was just, if I want it, I'll get it. No big deal. 20% said that they like to buy new editions when it is a dramatic change from a previous edition. Like, that makes it worth it to, for them to buy it. So those are the people that got pissed off when uh, Watsy did 3.0 to 3.5. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yes. And then the funny thing is, is 19%, so almost the same percentage, would prefer that a new edition be tweaks and reorganizations and clarifications <laughs> rather than brand new. Those are the people that love 3.5. <laughs> yes. And then 9% uh, of the people that responded basically said they would rather buy a whole new game than to keep getting new editions of a previous uh, game that they already own. So I have a few data points on that. Personally, while I like brand new snazzy things, I do wish more games did the iterative method where it's like, well, we know X is a problem, so let's just refine how X works, but leave everything else the same and put out a new edition. Like, I don't mind that. I know there are people that do mind that, but I kind of like how that being a... a where you learn from the specific things that you've seen as trouble well, points. Well, let's, let's take a second and talk about why a game company or designer would come out with a new edition of the game. You know, because there's, there, there's a wide variety of reasons to come out with a new edition. There is, you know, what you were just saying, the previous version isn't organized as well as it should be. It's not as clear as it should be. And we can refine some of that. There is the, you know, the rules have evolved and we can make a better game that's, you know, fits with the more modern gaming milieu. And then there's the, let's, let's face it, there is the purely, you know, capitalist version of we need to continue making money with this mm -hmm. product so right. we can yep. get people to buy new books if we put out a new edition. You know, all three of those are valid reasons why new editions come out. And sometimes mm -hmm. it can be all three. Yeah. You know? Yep. My my, my uh, uh, issue with the small iter iterative changes is buying the 500-page $60 book. And then I have to personally go through and figure out what four things did they change. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I would gladly subscribe to a... I don't know, magazine type release where they're like, here are our monthly changes or our quarterly changes. Quarterly is probably more reasonable for, you know, 15 or 20 bucks a quarter. And then every, oh, I don't know, four years, here's all the changes rolled up into one. 
I don't know. That, that seems more reasonable to me. The, the to call out Paizo and Pathfinder Two, um, I was not a fan, to be honest with you. They made some pretty good changes. They modernized the game quite a bit, but it wasn't a deep enough shift for mm-hmm. me to justify ditching because because the the conversion from Pathfinder One to Pathfinder Two is is considerable. It, it's not a light lift on the game master to convert a version one monster to a version two monster or, or class or mm. prestige class or whatever. It's a heavy lift. And I was so deeply invested in Pathfinder one. I, I didn't feel like lifting, you know, the mental lift that is mentally lifting mm-hmm. all my Pathfinder one knowledge into a Pathfinder two rule set. So honestly, when they released Pathfinder two, I moved to D and D five. Yeah. The, the irony of what you had mentioned about um, not necessarily republishing books with brand new information but just having some sort of up- updated centralized location this is a good versus bad in the same instance where fourth edition if you had fourth edition D, if you had the insider account when there was a rata they would update everything so if you were making your right. characters straight out of the uh out of the character builder you were up to date mm-hmm. but the problem was Fourth edition had way too much errata for the age of the game. Like yeah. literally weeks yes, it after it would come out, there would be whole sections that didn't look the same anymore in the books. Well, I mean, let's let's face it. Let's face it. To a certain degree, you almost couldn't play fourth edition without the character builder. Yeah, agreed. It was really difficult to try and keep track of everything you had to update for a character without what the character builder automated for you mm-hmm. yeah you know so trying to do the errata on top of what's in the books on just straight pen and paper is part of why you know like there were there were a lot of let's just face it there were a lot of issues with fourth edition there is a reason the span of time between fourth edition to fifth edition is so tiny but that was i think one of them is that you just it wasn't i don't I do not think 4th edition was a bad game. I enjoyed oh, I a lot either. of what I played in 4th edition. It wasn't an easy game. It was kind of cumbersome. I, yeah. I do think um, that's an instance where multiple things that they wanted to do, like when you're saying that you know a new edition might be triggered by multiple things, I think the desire to resell a new set of core books yeah. caused that game to come out probably a year before it should have, at least. Yeah. Like, I yep. think another year of fine-tuning would have hammered out a lot of the things that kind of overwhelmed the game right at the start. Well, I mean, let's let's be honest here. In 3rd edition, I think I think Jared and I, I think you and I talked about this before. In 3.0, they came out with a new hardcover book once a quarter, every 2 months. Yep. Some like they, there were a massive amount of 3rd edition books hardcover books for yeah. D&D. Not counting world books, it was quarterly for hardcover. And five softbacks per quarter as well. So so much you'd get two softbacks and a hardback. Yeah, I towards um, in, in my, my in the wallet and my bookshelves felt in it the all. very last <laughs> in the very last year of D and D development for three five at least the last year before they announced they were going to fourth. So people were still kind of assuming this is going to keep going on. They literally did have months where there were two hardcovers per month, mm-hmm. and it would be one core mm-hmm. book and one realms book then the next month it'd be one core book and one eberron book 
and right. it got ridiculous. Yeah. Like I, that was part of why I never got into Eberron is because I was trying to keep up with all of the core releases and all the realms releases. So I just couldn't, you know, make any room to pick up any Eberron books either. Yeah. Same here. I'm Same looking here, over yeah. at my shelf. I, I I was the one that picked up the Zebra books. Threw it on my shelf yeah. right over there. So so you're the one that kept it alive. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I love the setting now. It was just that you know back in the three five era, it was like, oh, I've always loved the realms, and I can't really jump off this train right now. So right? I have a very good friend who prided himself on his D and D book collection. He had every single book that TSR had like. Not necessarily every module, but every hardcover book that TSR had ever put out. So when Watsy picked it up and came out with 3.0, he was trying to pick up. And then there's the, you know, the open license. So you've got all these third-party people publishing D&D material. And right. he's like, do I try and keep up with that? He very quickly realized, <laughs> no, he couldn't. But even, even the sheer volume that Wizards was coming out with for 3.0 was overwhelming for somebody mm -hmm. whose mission it was to collect all hardcover D&D books. Mm -hmm. you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a, a admirable mission. <laughs> Tough one for th the 3035 yeah, days. Yeah. yeah. But I think they, they moved, they, they kind of learned their lesson, you know, between that and then the debacle that was 4th edition and then moving into 5th edition, they've been much more conservative with the number of hardcover books they come out with yeah yeah uh, one thing that i think is interesting is that as far as like i i left a spot for people to you know throw in their own comments in that uh in that survey and the games that got mentioned as a big paradigm shift you know where the game didn't barely you know barely resembled the previous version of the game was 7c second edition mm -hmm. and um fourth edition D D games that people cited as being very similar to previous editions were Call of Cthulhu and Savage Worlds between different editions. Yeah. And, you know, from what I've seen, I would agree with, with both of those assessments. I think I would agree with those as well. I know quite a few people who were upset with the seventh C, second, second edition 7th C changes. In part, that's because they spent way too much on the Kickstarter without <laughs> understanding what the game was going to be. Yeah. But that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. Because they leaned super heavily narrative in second edition, and I enjoyed it. My biggest complaint about it is they needed more examples since it was so narrative. Yeah. But, you know, I actually, from what I have seen, because I didn't really get the first edition, but from what I have seen, I like how they changed some things about the world, and I think there were probably some fans of first edition that would have been on board for the changes to the world that weren't on board for the shift from a medium crunchy game to one that yeah. is much lighter. I had, I, not that I had played the first, I'd only played the first edition once, I think, but an issue I had with the second edition was the method of gaining experience. You had to have a goal mm -hmm. and it was just very nebulous. Like, do I game this and come up with something I know I can complete in a real time? Or do I come up with something truly narrative for my character that may never be completed in her lifetime? Yeah, you know, so it was like, eh. Yeah, I, I ran two campaigns of it, and the first one went really well. The other one just kind of fizzled out. It wasn't bad or anything. But we ran into that a few times where someone would come up with their goal 
And the way they phrased their goal, they literally could not advance for session after session. They could yeah. not do the next oh, the next no. step of their That's horrible. I had a situation goal. where uh, we made characters all from the European style area. Mm-hmm. We all set our goals, and then the campaign started with the GM us stranding us in the Caribbean. Oh no! <laughs> Ouch! So it's like any of our goals were like yeah yeah you know Out. across the ocean yeah. And you're so stranded. it was like, oh no, yeah, and we're stranded. I want to have the biggest estate in Avalon. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that that's actually opposite. So I played a game, uh, Pendrag, role playing game, early '90s, and the more honor you had, the higher your level was. So you had to do things to gain honor. Kind of makes sense, right? Well, if you marry somebody with higher honor than yours, say Guinevere. You get half their honor added to yours, so you could be a lowly, let's say, second-level knight, which means you're you're not even a knight of the round table. And if you manage to marry the noble's daughter, who has high honor just by rank of her station, now all of a sudden you go from like second level to like seventh level just overnight because you got married. And <laughs> I, when I hit that part of the rules, I handed it to my my roommate buddy, also role player, and I was like, "Did I read this right?" And he looks at it and goes, yep, I'm not playing this game. And I was telling the story to somebody else many years later, and they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that loophole. They they fixed that in 5th edition. You must have been playing 3rd edition. <laughs> so it was like, uh, there's five editions of this horrific game. Uh, you know, Sorry, whoever makes Pendragon, but I'm not a fan. Um, uh, and actually, I just looked it up. They just released the 6th edition this year. Yep. This year. Um, wow! Turns out yep. it is by Chaosium. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, and others, depending on what year you look at. <laughs> yeah, I think they. I think Chaosium just brought that back home. That it was published yeah. outside of Chaosium for a while. Right. So let's see. I know Shadowrun is in its sixth edition. Right. Mm-hmm. Call of Cthulhu is seventh edition. Sounds yes. right. Okay. Uh, D and D is obviously fifth edition. Yep. <laughs> but uh, with an asterisk, because asterisk. there's all sorts of sub-editions. Sure, if you throw it back to yeah. me. And, yeah, it's offshoots, you know. The, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, the, the account of the early, like, how do you actually parse out the early edition? Right. Like, let's yeah. Not, we're not going yeah. there. That's like a whole podcast in and of itself. Um, Savage Worlds is in its, I'm going to say, third edition. They don't number them. Oh. There was Savage World, Adventure, or Explorer's Edition. And then the latest is Adventurer's Edition. I, I think that's mm-hmm. all of them. Yeah. Well, so, I had I had a version before the Explorer's Edition, and there was a version before that. So I think there's maybe been at least there's four. four. Okay, maybe there's four then. Yeah. Okay. So I must have missed one somewhere along the way then. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have three editions of Shadowrun on my of uh, Savage Worlds on my shelf. Mm-hmm. And you know there is something to be said for that style of edition. You know, it doesn't negate your older material. Right. Uh, you can still pick up your older books and just with a little bit of modification run it. Mm-hmm. I've been running uh, East Texas University using the new, yeah. you know, Suede Adventure Edition, mm-hmm. but all of the East Texas University material is the previous version. Right. So I have to do a little bit of legwork with some of the changes that were there, like the way you handle grades and stuff, which is a very ETU thing, because mm. you're college students, your grades are important. If you ignore yeah, sure. them, you're going to suffer. Um, <laughs> but 
you know, there's little changes with some of the monsters and all that. But for the most part, I can just grab something from that edition and use it as is without too much of a headache. Right, mm-hmm. right. Which is nice because, you know, you take a look at a, you know, an older adventure for D&D and there's like almost an entire business of people converting those for later mm-hmm. editions. Yep. I've been looking at the A series, A1 through 4 for first edition uh, D&D and, and pondering, I, I haven't convinced myself to do it, but I've been pondering converting it to fifth edition and mm-hmm. modernizing it both for social sensibility and removing sexism, racism, all, all, remove all the bad stuff that should have obviously never been there yeah. to begin with and run it for yeah. my group. But that's a lot of work. Have you heard of um, uh, Seth Skorkowski? He's a YouTuber who does a lot of... Um, ah. He he basically has... Um, he does a lot of reviews of older modules. Okay. Like both D&D, Call of Cthulhu, you know, tr- some Traveler stuff. And one of the things I appreciate is he will talk about an adventure. He's like, this is going to be spoilers, so if you ever expect to play <laughs> it, don't watch. Sure. But he will call out those things and be like, "Yeah, this is mm-hmm. not, this doesn't fly in modern times, and this is a problem as far as how the adventure was designed." You know, like the entire adventure hinges on you reacting to an NPC in a particular way. And right, we all know players; <laughs> they, don't, they don't do what you expect a lot of the time. Right. So, or you have the uh, well, the thief failed to pick the lock. Full stop. Adventure over. Um, in some cases, campaign over, because the rest yeah. of the campaign is literally on the other side of that door and beyond, and there's no other way to get through it, to it, nothing. And, and yeah, so that was, you know, that's it's adventure design of the day, <laughs> of that day. Um, yeah, the, yep. the Gygaxian tendency to put a monster immune to magic items in one room. And if you didn't explore all of the all the rooms on the right hand side of the hallway, <laughs> right? you don't have a magic item. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ah, gaming. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, that, what's What's interesting is um, I have been looking at like the uh, Goodman Games Fifth Edition uh, rewrites of the uh, some of the classic adventures, and the problem, like uh, the biggest deep dive I did into any of them was the Isle of Dread because I remember when I was a kid I loved oh, yeah. that adventure, and rereading that, not only is there problematic stuff in the original version they don't get rid of it and add some more problematic stuff in the new version like you can't portray native islanders as being like prone to worship cults not because anything is influencing their minds but just because they're just too primitive there's like so much stuff in there that is just like no you got to think about this now sure <laughs> please if you're updating modules take out the racism and the sexism yeah. and the homophobia yeah please. And, and, and that's actually a, a bigger thing and an easier thing to do than updating the rule set sorry <laughs> yeah. that's just how it is you know yeah well and then there's there's a section this one this one killed me because there's a section and they're talking about how the player characters probably wouldn't have enough ability to do something and if they wanted to enslave the locals to do it that might give them enough manpower. I'm like, don't even give anyone an option for that. Don't right. even bring that up. <laughs> yep. And that that was in the original, but it didn't get removed from the fifth, fifth edition version. Like, I wouldn't mind if you reprint the original as it was because it's a historical document. Sure. But don't leave it in the new version. <laughs> <laughs> 
So another thing I think we should talk about with um, new editions of games is the fact that, you know, us old timers, there are new games that we, you know, consider new that are coming out with newer editions. For example, Urban Shadows mm-hmm. recently kickstarted a second edition, and Urban Shadows only came out five, four years ago? If that, yeah, Not four, five. meaningless now, but yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, Feels like 12, know, but what... it's really been four, something like that. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> actually, my... that was in my notes for a uh, game to bring up about this. Yeah, there are some of these newer games that are, are you know, like, the, the, the designers are looking at the rules going, I could I could have done better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of my very favorite Powered by the Apocalypse games to run is Monster of the Week, mm-hmm. which did a very early second edition they yeah. they published the game i believe they published the original edition themselves realized it could get improved and basically ended up getting a deal with evil hat and publishing mm-hmm. through evil hat their second edition which cleaned up the game immensely and did a lot of really cool improvements and is in my opinion one of the best power by the apocalypse games to pick up to figure oh, yeah. out how powered by the yes. apocalypse works yes you know, but the you know, there's you know, that's starting to happen with something you know, like games a lot of us consider new. Like even yeah. Pathfinder was new to me and like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's that's been out for twelve years now, and I was just gonna say we don't want to do run the math on that one though, because <laughs> <laughs> that one tends to be longer than you realize. Yeah. Um yeah, I I was just gonna say, um, Monster of the Week is one of the best ones I think to look at to understand Power by the Apocalypse. But yeah, that it had an early Second edition. Yeah, like it wasn't out for very long before they did a revised edition. Urban Shadows is one that you mentioned. Uh Monster Hearts 2. Um Yeah, you know, Monster Hearts Mon- 2. Like none of these games can be older than power than the Apocalypse World. So obviously these are all within that window of time. And Apocalypse and was, World has its a second edition. Yeah, Apo- yeah. And um Worldwide Wrestling, which is another Powered by the Apocalypse game that I would suggest for people that want to get in the the mindset that are having a hard time maybe bouncing off some other uh games. That's another one that there's a second edition of uh, Worldwide Wrestling coming out, which actually rolls in a lot of the stuff from the supplements that were put out. Mm-hmm. So I, I think what happens a lot of times with uh, more indie designers is that because they want to get a game out, once the game is complete, it comes out. But then you get some feedback on stuff that maybe you wanted to add in there that maybe won't come up every session, but is stuff that you want to address. Yeah. And, you know, I think there is a little bit more flexibility on that front to uh, put out that next edition. Right. Well, a lot of indie publishers only have, you know, they, they, they can do playtesting, but they don't have the resources that a larger company mm-hmm. will have to do playtesting. And even the larger companies have shot themselves in the foot by not play testing as much as they should have, i.e. Yeah, fourth right? edition. And they, they basically took their time coming like like I believe I believe fifth edition came out in twenty fourteen. Yes. Sounds right, yes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And basically they did play testing mm-hmm. for two years. Yeah. Before coming up that an indie designer doesn't have the resources to do that level of playtesting right. so they get the game out in as best a manner as they can but they're gonna see you know if you have a designer that's dedicated to doing more with that game they're gonna see things they could have done better 
I'm also going to bring up another point. Like, look at let's look at software for a moment. Like your web browser. How often does Google Chrome mm-hmm. update? Every couple of mm-hmm. weeks, right? At, at most, mm-hmm. usually it's more faster than that. A lot of indie folks are focused on their digital product, and the the physical is maybe a print on demand. So they don't mm-hmm. have to invest in ten thousand yeah. copies of of a particular brand, a particular version. And when that well runs dry, now we can do you know the second version. Now you're working yeah. on the oh, second yeah. version the whole time. And that is a great point. When you have enough of a delta, enough of a change set, you're like, okay, we'll put 2.0 on this, upload it to drive through RPG, lower price of version one, keep version two at the price of version one, and you know it's a sequel essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and go for, move forward from there. And if you really got to have the physical, then the the publisher would flip the switch on drive through RPG to enable print on demand and the publisher's not out a dime mm-hmm. as far as, you know, investing in 10,000 more copies of version two. Yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of times with the Kickstarter, when they're, if they're doing something that's going to be the higher quality, not print on demand run, uh-huh. they're going to make that to the pe- you know, to the run of people that back the Kickstarter. Right. So they're not getting a ton of extra Plus, stuff. It, well, usually a print run has to be of a certain number of books. So if you sold 1,024, mm-hmm. maybe you've got to order 1,500. And then you yeah. have you know 400 some odd copies left to, yeah, to, not like to like hand out cons yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not like those horror stories we hear from the, the 80s and 90s where somebody did a print run of their book and there's like, boxes and boxes yeah. and boxes and somebody's basement or yeah yeah back room or something i, I like have that. a couple of boxes of my two fiction novels that i have uh, purchased for selling at cons and mm-hmm. had 2020 been a relatively normal year i'd have maybe five or six copies of each book instead of 40-ish yeah. some odd copies of each book mm-hmm. so I, i've got like you know almost 100 copies of fiction that i, I can't do anything with so. An interesting thing that I have noticed, um, Fantasy Flight did this for a lot of games, where they would put out a beta rule set, which was essentially a complete game, but it was a complete game that they wanted people to play test. Sure. Mm-hmm. Was it like a rules light kind of kind of thing, or or um, just like, like here's um, what we have so far? Basically, like for the Star Wars things, it was just the bare bones setting information, okay. but it was like most of the rules that were going into gotcha. it. And so it was probably maybe half the size of the full rule set because in the full rule set, they'll go into the whole thing about how there's a grand galactic empire and blah, 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 blah. But they just hit that really fast in the, the beta version of it. They did that for a lot of the, um, the 40 K RPGs when they still they, had the license hand, for that. They too. hand wave. You, you guys know what Star Wars yes, is. You know what this is. Just display this. But what I was going to say about the beta thing, I noticed like, as far as, um, publishers go, Magpie has been doing a lot of the Ashcan editions. Mm-hmm. of games that is sort of that same mindset like we're going to put out this bare bones version of the game and eventually someday we're probably going to do a kickstarter to do a full version of this and i i kind of wonder now because this is something they did later i'm kind of wondering if urban shadows would have been that same paradigm if they had been in that mindset of doing the ash cans back that, then that's probably very true mm-hmm. you know i mean i mean i Urban Shadows is a solid book. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, it is even even if you're not going to run Urban Shadows, I highly I highly enjoyed reading it. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of the philosophy that went into what they were trying to do with the game. Mm-hmm. You know, so I highly recommend it even for just that. Oh yeah. The second I'm, edition looks so nice so far. Like just the layout and the art 
that they have shown and in the uh, quick start that they released. It looks so slick. Nice. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to play it, but I really want it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I admit I have bought a few books because they were pretty. <laughs> and they're on the shelf behind me on video right now and, and they're probably in pristine shape <laughs> because i flipped through them once went ooh, nice layout nice borders pretty artwork I, I i didn't even pay attention to the rules i mean it could be a great great role-playing game i have no idea but it was a man it was a pretty book but now here's <laughs> here's the thing i'll throw out there and i know we don't want to ride in this discussion too much because you know we need to bring it back in but there is a question about additions there the Fantasy Flight Star Wars, there's three core books for three different styles of campaign, where, as far as the rules go, 90% of the core rules in each of those things is exactly the same. And another example I have on my shelf right in front of me, uh, my Star Trek Adventures, where I have the core book and then the Klingon book that just released. And again, all of the resolution mechanics, the core game mechanics, are the same between those two. You know, although the Klingon book has, like, extra details for houses and stuff like that. But I will say, compared to the Star Wars books, one thing that they did do with the Klingon book is they kind of did that iterative thing, where they clarified how they explain some of the subsystems, mm. and they introduce an alternate advancement mechanic. So that is a weird case where they kind of did an iterative thing by putting out a second book that is for playing Klingons. All right. so. <laughs> I, I can't actually get on board with that because you have the add, the value add of Klingon information, right? It, it's not mm -hmm. just, you know, here's the rules we changed. It's here's the rules that we've we've streamlined in, in the intervening time, plus all the goods that you're really buying the book for. Um, yeah. yeah. And and I, you know, I, I can look over on my shelf and see those three Star Fantasy Flight Star mm. Wars books. Those are not cheap books. No. Um, so I... <laughs> I'm somewhere in the middle on mm. whether they're a good thing or not, because it, I, I think it's a good idea that they separated in, them into the types of games you could be playing. Mm. But the fact that they're all mostly the same rule set, you just have different character options between them. I, like, I think eh. there are definite arguments that those are three distinct campaign types that they are presenting. Yeah. yeah. But I think you could also make the argument that you could have done a core book and then three campaign books. Yeah. detailing those kinds of campaigns as well. And, I mean, I gotta admit, when I've played it, we've allowed people to make characters from all three books. Mm -hmm. You know? We had, our, we had our scoundrel, we had our Jedi, we had our ex-Imperial engineer, you know, we, we had somebody <laughs> from, you know, there was a character from each of the books mm -hmm. in our campaign, because, you know, that's kind of what the players want. You know, mm -hmm. you say Star Wars and you have one person who wants to play their Han Solo and another person who wants to play their space wizard. So. Right. Yeah. And of... like the last six books that Fantasy Flight have put out have not been divided into one or the other. They've been cross game books. Sure. So I'm wondering even there if they kind of said, you know what? <laughs> We're not going to do starships of scoundrels and starships of Jedi and starships <laughs> of. Uh, of the rebellion, um, yeah. that's a little bit harder to sell. Yeah, there. I wonder if that um, was a financial call, and if it was, it was a smart call because I don't know. How, the, the books were what sixty dollars each ish. I think so, so. For the full set, full set, the base core three, that's one hundred eighty bucks. Interesting side note: I got my three books because when I hit my ten year anniversary 
at work, my boss bought me a hundred dollar Star Wars <laughs> minis game, and he's like, I don't, he's like, I know you're a gamer, but I don't know if this is your game, so I have the receipt if you want to return it. And it basically was able to cover the cost of the two books I didn't have. Nice, <laughs> nice. I, I think that mindset of dividing them that way came from when they had the the 40k licenses, because I know when they had the license with Games Workshop they were required to do each game as a separate core book because yeah. they wanted it very clear that your Imperial Guardsman game is not a Space Marines game right. back then. Yeah, now, yeah. the current the current one, Wrath and Glory, is just 40k <laughs> and make it fit. Yeah. But back then when Fantasy Flight was doing it, they, you know, each one had to be like, this is the one about Space Marines. This is the one about the Imperial right. Guard. Well, it came from the, the Army Book uh, mindset of the tabletop yeah. strategy game where this book is about orcs and this book is about mm -hmm. Space Marines and this book is about whatever, right? You know? yeah. yeah. So I think that was kind of an extension of that process sure. because I think they did make some money off of having the core books separated in that manner. <laughs> but I don't know that there's a big a difference. Like, there were some rules drift, like the core rules were the same between all of those systems, but at the same time, it felt very different when you say, you know, your your space marines have stats that are on average like 60 points higher than <laughs> your Imperial Guard. <laughs> By the way, your Imperial Guard gets a friend that gets to die so that you have the feeling of your unit losing lots of people so that your PC doesn't always die. Right. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to drag this out too long because yes. we are starting to go a little long, but I mean, <laughs> there are those games like, you know, the dreaded, you know, Rift's Palladium games yeah. where they come out with new, new game, you know, like new books, new supplements, and those supplements change the rules. So the point mm -hmm. that if you built a character from an older edition and somebody else built a character from a newer edition, you were completely outclassed. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So oh, yeah. that was a... Rules drift oh. without actually addressing oh, they had an no, addition balance they issue. They had no intention of addressing the balance issue. Um, Kevin's, I always say his last name wrong, that Kevin of Rifts uh, has gone on record of saying, <laughs> life is not fair, therefore role-playing games aren't fair. Deal with it. <laughs> I, th I mean, that hit me in 4th edition because I was playing a paladin who was supposed to be a, um, uh, what was the term? A defender? Yes, Defender. Yeah. yeah. So that's the same role that Fighters had in 4th edition. But when Martial Power came out, which was the first splat book for the fighter types, someone entered our game playing a fighter, and they defended so much better than my Paladin oh, no. just after that first thing came out, and I was so frustrated by that. Because, like, yeah. this game isn't even four months old, and my character feels worthless compared to something built out of this book. That sounds like a whole other show topic. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. <laughs> so somebody jot down niche protection somewhere. Done. I will. I will send a note Bob. to you. <laughs> somewhere, Bob, put a pin on this. <laughs> we should probably start wrapping up. Any yeah, yes. last thoughts before we go into our outro? The only thing that I will say is the main thing that I learned from doing this poll is that you don't have one clear reason for people to buy a new edition most people just want to buy a new edition when they want to buy it and it looks shiny and they have the mm -hmm. money for it and everyone else is kind of split evenly between i want something completely new or i want the same thing slightly polished and that's really it jt <laughs> any any last thoughts from you no i think jared covered everything i was going to say to be honest with you. ditto <laughs> what, what jared said <laughs> yeah i think i think the last thing i'll add is that new editions are going to happen 
they're they're not going to go away. Games are going to get new additions. Make your own decision and decide whether or not you want to move to a new edition or not. There are still people playing first edition D&D. I'm one of them. You know? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's your choice. It, it, a new edition does not erase an old edition. <laughs> so this show is funded by the Gnomes 2 Patreon. You too can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnomes 2 website to the Gnomes 2 Patreon. This episode is brought to you by the Edition Rewinder. If you don't like the latest version of a game, no one is forcing you to play it. You can always be kind and rewind back to the previous edition that you love. The Edition Rewinder is brought to you by the kind folks from a blockbusting chain of stores. If you are enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Mr. Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Pandas Talking Games. Phil and Cinda answer your questions about RPGs from two different perspectives, but with a healthy dose of panda silliness. You can find all of us at gnomestew.com, at gnomestew on Twitter, and gnomestew on Facebook. Gnomes, where else can we find you on the internet? JT, go! I, you can find me at uh, jtevans.net. Uh, look at the top edge of every uh, page on my website, and you find links to all my greatness there out there on social media and other places on the internet. Uh, how about you, Jared? All right. Uh, you can find my blog at whatdoiknowjr.com. You can find me on Twitter at whatdoiknowjr. And if you want to listen to my actual play podcast, one, which, one of which uh, Andrew's in, you can go to uh, where I have my podcasts listed at anchor.fm slash whatdoiknowjr. And where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as orikes 13 O-R-I-K-E-S-13. Uh, though, as always, just a warning, Instagram is mostly pictures of my cats. So, <laughs> As it should be. So, do you guys think we avoided the stew this week, or are we working on a new recipe? New recipe. I mean, we went way long. <laughs> I, I was hoping not to get thrown in until uh, Gnome Stew 1.5 came out. <laughs> Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.